Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Alabest. In Eastern Europe in March of 1991, years of rising tension between Croats and Serbs erupted into violence when police and soldiers opened fire on civilians, resulting in what many agree were the first two deaths of the Yugoslav Wars. In the years to follow, tens of thousands more would lose their lives in a series of conflicts across the region. On today's episode, I'll be joined by one of my favorite teachers I've ever had the privilege to learn from, Dr. Beverly Allen, who studied the treatment of women and the roles that patriarchy played during those wars. Dr. Allen joined me for an interview to talk about her experiences studying this topic, as well as the relevance that her discoveries still hold today. I'll introduce our guest more thoroughly once the interview begins, but first I do want to caution listeners that this episode contains some challenging content. During our interview, Dr. Allen will discuss forms of violence, including the use of rape and torture. So please take care of yourselves accordingly. And I promise, although we cover some very bleak subject matter, Dr. Allen's words are also overflowing with wisdom and hope. So I'm honored to share my conversation with Dr. Beverly Allen. Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee Olibest. Today I am thrilled to be interviewing one of my heroes and one of my very favorite people, a professor that I had at Stanford several years ago. I was really excited when I saw the class list for the next semester come out, and there was a class called Dante and the Sacred Feminine. And I was so excited because that was a topic that I had been interested in for a long, long time, and I couldn't believe I was going to actually be able to study it in an academic setting in my master's degree. So I signed up, and I knew from the very first class period that this was going to be a life-changing class, and it was. And actually, listeners to season one, will be interested to know that our episode on Mary, Mother of God, a lot of the information that my daughter Sophie and I shared in that episode came from books that I read for the term paper I wrote in this class. So today I am super excited to talk with Dr. Beverly Allen, and I want to start with an introduction. So I'll read this short bio from Dr. Beverly Allen's website, beverlyallen.net. Beverly Allen, Ph.D., is an author, lecturer, and teacher in the humanities and spiritual traditions. Holding a bachelor's degree from music in, from the University of California at Berkeley, a master's in Italian from Columbia University, and a Ph.D. in Italian studies from UC Berkeley. She has taught at the University of California, Santa Cruz, Stanford University, Cornell University, the University of Zagreb, and Syracuse University, where she is a professor of French, Italian, and computer literature emerita and where she held the William P. Tolley Distinguished Teaching Professorship in the Humanities. Her diverse career includes a decade of investigative journalism and activism in Bosnia and Croatia during the 1990s. Insiders at the UN have said that her book, Rape Warfare, influenced the creation of a new international law making rape a crime against humanity. A prize-winning literary translator and screenwriter, Beverly Allen now lives in Berkeley, California, where she is writing, lecturing, and teaching. Her study of genocide and mass rape led her to an understanding that the sacred feminine is missing in Western culture and the world in general. 
tracing and reviving this is central to her work now. Her current topics of study include Gnosticism, early Christianity and the figure of Mary Magdalene, Dante and the sacred feminine, fairy tales, medieval European heresy and courtly love, Jung's work and the literature of Italy's storied cities. A certified Reiki master, she practices and values highly the arts of music, dance, and knitting. She loves dogs and gardens, and she travels often to Italy and Scandinavia. And wow, what an amazing person. And I feel so lucky to know you. So welcome, Beverly Allen, to our podcast today. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Amy. You're, you're the amazing person. You know, that bio neglects to mention two people who didn't exist when it got written. And th that would be my four-year-old granddaughter, Sage, and my one-and-a-half-year-old grandson, Micah, who are, my God, they're amazing. <laughs> they're the <laughs> of my old age. So, oh. yes. Um, also, my students are, are always so important to me. And uh, I'm very proud of you for doing what you do. And uh, thank you for inviting me to participate a bit. Oh, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for, um, I, I just felt a personal connection with you and was just so honored that you took kind of an interest in me and in my life and that, that we've developed a friendship since our class. I, it means the world to me. And I'm so grateful to have you as a mentor and a friend. So thank you. So I want to, I guess, introduce the topic. I have to say when I first started your class, or maybe even before I showed up that very first class period, I always look up my professors before and just kind of see like what they've done in the world and who they are. And so I had seen that bio before I started your class. And I was really intrigued about your work in Bosnia and Croatia and the book that you wrote about rape as a weapon of war. And I thought it was really interesting that a professor of literature and languages had contributed and made such a huge and meaningful contribution in this topic that seemed kind of like in a different field, like more in the sociology or something. And so maybe that would be a way into our topic, because what I had wanted you to talk about today, if you're willing, is to talk about your book and to talk about your experience in Serbia and Croatia and what that has to do with patriarchy. So could you just kind of lead us into the topic by telling us how you encountered this topic in the first place? Absolutely. You know, uh, I agree that it seems unusual that a literature professor should become interested in and work in this uh, topic. However, it happened at Stanford. I was teaching a course on the history of Italian literature. And of course, when you teach such a course, uh, you have to provide a critique of the canon. How do we decide what constitutes a national literature? And it's a huge cultural operation, you know, and it's got a traceable history and a history that is, in fact, ideological. So... One of the things we do, one of the things I do, is talk about the lack of female writers in that canon. Very, very few. So it became a course that incorporated feminist theory. And one of the students in this class, a young woman, she is uh, Croatian with Bosnian heritage. 
she discovered feminist theory in that class and became deeply uh, engrossed. And the following summer, I think it was summer of 92, I was at home and she asked, could she come over? And she brought with her a stack of testimonies by girls and women who had survived what we later came to call rape death camps. Now, she had gotten these from the Croatian Information Office in Los Angeles, where they had been translated into English. So I could read them. And I started reading them, and I didn't believe them. I thought, no, this is propaganda. This this can't be true. And they sounded so similar to each other. I was very suspicious. Deeply, I was unwilling to live in a world where things like this were happening, where Bosnian girls and women were being rounded up from villages and taken to restaurants or uh, schools or hospitals or hotels and held for months and being tortured and raped on and on and on. And I saw that uh, if they got pregnant, they were kept alive. If they didn't get pregnant, they were often simply executed. And if they got pregnant, they were held and continually raped until the pregnancies had gone past a, a point at which abortion would be possible without killing the mother. And that, in the eighth or ninth month of pregnancy, meant that the Serb nationalist captors, who were often militia, but also often regular soldiers in the then-called Yugoslav National Army, they would let the women go. And that meant running into the woods and trying to make their way into the refugee system and hopefully getting to Zagreb. I'll explain some of this uh, later. From the woman's point of view, getting to Zagreb meant getting to the Vrapche Hospital, which had treatment for, for them. Something happened when I was reading those, those testimonies, and they were all signed, by the way. Something happened to me, and my disbelief snapped into belief. Hmm. And the instant that it did... I saw that I needed to, to stop this. And this is how it started for me. I, I needed to stop these rapes, these rape camps. It didn't occur to me that I couldn't. <laughs> so the question was, what do I do now? And the first step was to contact a journalist at, uh, in New York, and who happened to know, she was married to a colleague in the French department at Columbia. And I told her what I had learned. And she said that a colleague of hers, Rory Gutman, was in Bosnia and had heard rumors about these places, but he had no evidence. And could I please, at the time, fax these copies to her and she would get them to Roy. So Roy got these, and that enabled him 
to write the first article that appeared in the United States, in the Washington Post, in fact, about rape camps in Bosnia run by Serb nationalist militia and soldiers. And he kept with that story and later won a Pulitzer Prize for it. And I got to meet him and, oh, you're the one who faxed those, he said. <gasps> really? Wow. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So, you see, it, it, it doesn't matter. I learned, I learned this. It doesn't matter. How can I put it? You don't have to figure out how to solve the whole problem. You just have to figure out the next possible step, the next step you can take. Mm. And so... Another interesting thing happened uh, during this period. I remember being at the Stanford Shopping Center, and you know how elegant and high-end that is. Mm -hmm. And I had stopped at a little cafe. I was sitting, it was early in the morning somehow, and I was sitting at a table outside having a cappuccino. And at the table quite near mine, here were two men dressed in suits and one looked European to me. I've spent a good part of my life in, in Europe. My family is from Sweden, and I, I've lived in Sweden. I've lived in Italy for 13 years. I've lived, you know, I had spent time in the former Yugoslavia, France, Greece. You know, I'm, I'm familiar with some signs of Europeanness, perhaps. That's a way to put it. And I had a strong feeling that one of these men, the older one, was, was European. And the younger one looked to me like some kind of American government official. Now, this is a total stereotype. You know, he had a buzz cut. He had, I mean, he just looked like some government guy. Well, then I heard what they were saying. And they were arranging for the wealth of the older man to be transferred and cared for by the U.S. government so that he could stay away from Croatia. Hmm. And that's when I learned he was Croatian. So it was reaching the Stanford Shopping Center. Hmm. I remember coming out of a concert on campus, and it was beautiful summer evening, and I heard some young people talking about the, the rapes in Bosnia, and they had heard something somewhere about snuff films, and, you know, and I thought, my God, you know, I've got to find out what is going on. Well, one of the things to do is when you're trying to figure out the next step to take, look at the options you do have. And one of my options was to apply for a grant to translate Italian poetry in Venice. And I applied for that grant and I got it. And I knew that this would be probably the closest I could get in Italy to Zagreb, where I might be able to meet some survivors and, uh, try to understand what, what, what this was. Really, I was still doubting a bit, you know, still hoping that the world didn't have such horrible things in it. Hmm. So I got to Venice, and the wife of a poet I've written a book about took me to a literary luncheon and sat me next to someone who uh, ran the Italian Institute of Culture in Zagreb. 
And he was having a very hard time getting speakers to come from Italy because every now and then Zagreb would be shelled. But I couldn't wait to get there. You weren't weren't scared? No. No. (laughs) I I don't know why. Yeah, I was going to ask why, but... You just um, were you cut. You felt you had a mission. Absolutely. Wow. Now, as a for, as a former Mormon, you would understand that. I guess. Yeah, you felt called by something. I do I understand that. I felt definitely that. called. I felt definitely called. There was just no uh, no alternative. I had to do this. And so uh, one day, I uh, I got on the train from Venice to Zagreb, and at each stop along the way, it became more and more clear that. I was the only woman on the on the train that we were going into a war zone that uh, I was a suspicious character. Even though, you know, the the hardest, actually, the hardest question for me was, what am I going to wear? You know, what am I going to wear to the war? (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, I want to be very respectful of the people I meet. So I decided mm-hmm. I would dress as well as I could, like some of my best mm-hmm. teaching clothes, whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that turned out to be a very good decision. Hmm. A very good decision. Because after all, I was going to uh, a city that considered itself a major European capital, and mm-hmm. in many ways is. So I gave a lecture on behalf of the Italian Cultural Institute in Italian. And I guess about 300 people came. Hmm. Now, during the war, people lack things to do. You know, it's boring. Hmm. But many of them understood Italian because they, well, of past history. And so uh, they did come. And among other people, I met a journalist and an editor, and they asked me to come with them the next day to a book presentation in Karlovac, which is a city that was on the front line. And I did that, and bit by bit, I mean, that's a whole other story, you know. I got to tell you, war, I learned, is actually, there's something attractive about it because it makes everything very clear. You know, when you're busy surviving, you don't have time for a lot of neuroses, although it creates neuroses later. Anyway, that's one of the, the secrets of war. You know, it's, uh, it's very dangerous that way. It's, it's, I remember I, I've been essentially a pacifist all my life, but one day I was in Sarajevo, and this was just after the war. And it was a just after the war had ended. And it was kind of a scary place because there was a lot of anger and mm-hmm. uh, disaster and trauma. And you never knew who was going to explode or whatever. And I, I'll never forget how when I saw a UN sort of armored car, I felt, oh, thank goodness, mm-hmm. you know. I was grateful. So that's another story. War itself creates this world that is different from daily life in peacetime. Hmm. 
so actually that's maybe that's an answer to your <laughs> more than an answer to your question how did i find out about it and what did i do i uh yeah, I continued to, to uh, volunteer to teach at the uh, Syracuse University campus in Florence. I And from there, I could take the train to Zagreb and continue my research. I took an extra leave of absence. I lived on half salary, uh, whatever oh. it took. And one day I was speaking about what I had been learning, in uh, mostly in Croatia because that's where I met survivors at the University of Florence. And I was sitting on a panel and next to me was uh, an Italian journalist who had written about what he had learned in Bosnia. And I said, you know, I think I need to write a book too, but I don't know how to start it. I, he had seen me jotting little notes on the back of an envelope for how, how I would speak that day. I had just written down, you know, topics that I wanted to cover in my brief talk to about 150 political science students at uh, the University of Florence. And when I said to this man sitting next to me, I don't know, you know, how to start, he looked at this little ratty little envelope and he said, well, that way. <laughs> and so when yeah. you read my book, you'll see it's divided into topics. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, you can do more than you think you can. <laughs> hmm. Is it divided into envelope one, envelope two, <laughs> envelope three? <laughs> um, yes, but I don't say that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, that's actually really inspiring. It really is through that whole story. I, I, what, one thing I'm going to take away from this conversation is your that exact point of what's the next step? What can I do? Because I think so many times we don't do anything because we're so overwhelmed by how depressing it is and what a huge issue it can be. And we just get, it, it, it overwhelms us to the point of paralysis. And so then we think, well, I can't solve the problem. I can't even talk about the whole problem. So I guess I won't do anything. And so I love that you just thought, well, I'll just take this next small step. I'll take the fellowship in Italy. Then I'll have access. Then I'll take the train over whenever I can and I'll write it on envelopes. And then, I mean, eventually it turned into your book. So, but keep going with your sto this story. This is, this is fantastic. Okay. Well, I knew a woman in Florence who had started, she had founded the first feminist bookstore in Italy. And uh, she, she must have come because I was giving talks in Italian and in English to different audiences. I had lived in Italy quite a while and, you know, off and on, but for many years. And I uh, had become, I had been invited to join the Radical Party, which was a trans party party. That's another great research project for uh, young academics to look at what they did. In other words, uh, that party, they called themselves the Radical Party because they wanted to get to the root of things, mm -hmm. radical in that sense. Mm -hmm. And they uh, promoted legal abortion, which saved many lives. They promoted divorce, which didn't exist in Italy until sometime in the 70s. They, you know, and 
one of their leaders. So she was headed to the UN. I was back at Syracuse by then. She learned about my work somehow. She asked me to come and meet her at the UN, and I did. She said, what can we do for you? What can we do for you? You know, I'm going to take a parenthesis here. At some point in my spiritual journey, I thought I could be Episcopalian. And I remember having lunch with an Episcopalian dean in Syracuse. He was dean of the cathedral. And he wanted to know about my work in Bosnia. And I went and I told him what my beliefs were and discussed metaphor and, you know, symbol and this and that. And I said, so I don't know if the way I uh, understand the Christianity qualifies me for being an Episcopalian. And he said, well, Beverly, perhaps the better question here is what can we do for you? Oh, wow. And oh, my heart melted, you know, it melted. And this woman said, what can we do for you? And she said, okay, when you go to Rome, you, you go to this journalist and that journalist. If you need to do, I later needed to do research at the, the law library in Rome. And they also, everyone that I needed help from was a member of the radical party. And that was because you, you didn't have to quit any other party you were in to join this. It was really about getting down to, you know, the roots of things. So back in Florence, um, I had met this woman who had the, the bookstore. And she asked me, would I allow her to bring a few friends? And would I speak to them in Italian? And yes, so one night I gave a little talk. There were very few people sitting around a table, maybe seven, eight. And one of them turned out to be Antonio Cassese, who was a professor at the European University, which was just outside Florence and at the University of Florence. His topic is international jurisprudence. And he was a friend of the bookstore woman. And also he was the first president of the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia. Wow. What? Hmm. So I gave my talk and uh, discussed what I had learned and how I read it, how I analyzed it. And afterwards he said to me, thank you, Beverly. Until I heard you speak, I didn't know I understood that there were two kinds of rape going on in Bosnia, the regular kind, regular, that uh, happens in all wars, hmm. and something else. But I didn't understand what the something else was until I heard you speak. And this man was sitting on top of all the evidence that existed at the time, and he hadn't been able to understand the difference and he said, please, will you come to the tribunal? You're writing a book. Please send the manuscript as soon as it's finished so I can give it to all the judges. And please come and confer with our chief prosecutor, Goldstone. And I said I would. Okay, if it's okay to interrupt for a second, Beverly, I'm just wondering if you could give us just a little bit of the lay of the land and back up just a tiny bit for listeners 
and honestly, including myself, who maybe need a, a bit of a refresher about the conflict that was happening in the area. Who were the major players? Just briefly kind of remind us of the years and the what the conflict was about. And then, yes, please tell us what you what you discovered as you did your research and then were presenting afterwards what was happening in these countries. Yes, this is the hardest question to answer because I really could speak for hours to explain it. After World War I, Yugoslavia was divided into regions. Here's how I see it. What we've got in uh, the Balkans is the division between the Western Empire and the Eastern Empire. It goes back to the early common era. We have in the West, essentially the Roman church, and in the East, the Orthodox church. And that division is based on a a disagreement about what constitutes the nature of Christ. Mm -hmm. That's another issue. Then we have the Ottoman Empire, which was this fabulous, uh, powerful empire coming from Turkey and conquering everything that it could, uh, including Serbia, Bosnia, what we call Bosnia. So in Bosnia, and the Ottomans were encountering then the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was Catholic. The Ottomans were Muslim. What we have is sect developing in Bulgaria, called the Bogomils, and these are Christians who are very pacifist, and they follow their missionaries. Their missionaries come across into Bosnia, what we call Bosnia, which had been uh, conquered by the Ottoman Turks. Many Bosnians converted to Islam under the rule of the Turks. The Bosnians, the people who lived in that region, are no different from the Serbs or the Croats or uh, any of the other regions of the former Yugoslavia. Genetically, you know, it's it's not a question of race, although it's been Mm -hmm. formulated in those terms. But under the Ottomans, a lot of Bogomils, these Christians in Bosnia who were not Roman Catholic, they converted to Islam because it made life easier. Hmm. The Ottomans were taxing non-Muslims much more heavily than they were taxing Muslims. So these converts had they formed a, a version of Islam that was heavily influenced by Bogomilism. And that meant that their version of Islam was pacifist. It was welcoming of others. It was non-proselytizing. And that tradition continued in Bosnia. Bosnia also invited Jews who had been expelled from Spain to come and live in Bosnia. So there's been a flourishing Jewish community ever since. 
in uh, uh, well, think of now post World War II, Yugoslavia became a non-allied state. It was a communist state, but not aligned with the Soviet Union. And the ruler of Bosnia, the president, whatever you want it, whatever he was called, was Tito. Mm-hmm. Tito was very severe with regional nationalists. So if you were a Serb nationalist, uh, it, it was not, I mean, you, you risked getting put in prison. He was very severe with uh, homosexuals. He was very severe in those ways. However, he built a highway connecting north with south, and he called it the uh, Highway of Brotherly Love. He did everything he could to create a Yugoslav identity, which meant Southern Slav. And we don't realize it from the outside, but that was a novelty. Because until then, people had identified absolutely as Slovenian, Croatian, Serbian, Montenegrin, Macedonian. And there was a uh, even a uh, census where you had, if you were living in that in Yugoslavia, you had to choose which one of these. You had to say which one of these you were. However, Bosnia, the region of Bosnia, contained everything. It was such a welcoming region. It was so integrated that there wasn't a nationalist label. So they gave it the label Muslim. Hmm. So although that didn't describe every Bosnian by a long shot. Okay, Tito dies in the 80s and is replaced by a five-man presidency. But from the beginning, Slobodan Milosevic, who was the leader in Serbia, had plans to take over the presidency completely. He was already busy nationalizing the Yugoslav army and making it a Serb army. I met university professors who lost their jobs during the late 80s because they weren't Serb. So finally, one day, well, so this this army, this sort of Yugoslav national army, which was really a Serb nationalist army, made a deal with Slovenia, and Slovenia paid it off not to attack. With the money that the army got from Slovenia, they bought weapons and arms and attacked Croatia and uh, massacred. Now, Croatia is heavily Catholic, okay? Franciscan missionaries converted it, let's say. It was, it's very close to what was the Austrian, Austria-Hungarian Empire. Um, then it started with, on Bosnia. And the goal of the Serbs, I have a friend, she tells me, she's a writer in Sarajevo. She said, we woke up one morning and we saw the army ringing the hills around Sarajevo. And we thought, oh, they must be doing some some exercises. And then they started shooting us. Oh, my gosh. So thus began the siege of Sarajevo. And there were... 
a number of other cities that underwent the same siege uh, tactics and, and suffered enormously. Yeah. Can you tell, remind us what year this was? 92. Okay. 1992. And so thus began the uh, invasion of Bosnia, the, the Serb nationalist attack on Bosnia. Now, Bosnia is a, a beautiful place and it's full of minerals and has a great had a great industry in herbs and was valuable real estate and the serbs yeah so serb nationalists have developed a rhetoric of victimization their creed says that, that historically they have been victimized by Muslims, by Turks, by the Ottoman Empire. Mm -hmm. And this justifies any attempt they make at regaining territory. Mm. Now we get to the rapes. Yes, there were what Cassese called regular rapes in war. What does that mean? What did he mean by that? Because there are regular rapes all the time. Exactly. But what did he mean by regular rapes in war? Just that there weren't, there's not as much policing. And so there's more, whenever there's a crisis, crime goes up because A, people are stressed and B, they can get away with more. Is that what he meant? Yes, exactly. And I should have been more clear about that, but uh, it happens in war that, the soldiers are, they have no accountability right? Yeah. for any sex crimes they might commit. Mm-hmm. Uh, until recently, there was no accountability for uh, crimes against civilians, mm-hmm. you know, for all sorts of other crimes. Mm-hmm. So that was going on, Cassese understood. But what was this other thing? Well, this other thing turned out to be a policy on the part of Serb nationalist forces, both army and militia. And that policy, uh, we discovered it was called the, we discovered it in two uh, sources, the ROM plan and the Brana plan. And these were discovered surreptitiously. and, And therefore we have evidence that these forces ordered the use of rape as a weapon of terror. So their forces would enter a Muslim village, say. By the way, the in in the in the cities, everyone was mixed with everyone else. And people were in what so-called mixed marriages, although they never thought of them that way. I mean, under Tito, people didn't identify so much as Serb or Bosnia. They were just Yugoslavs, and they married each other. They were, but a lot of these mixed couples, mixed couples, had to leave. They were terrified of what would happen to them. Uh, and sorry, when you say mixed marriages, too, so so you're saying like, in general, there were divisions that like Serbs tended to be Christian, and who tended to be Muslims? Serbs were nominally Orthodox Christians. Yes, and. Uh, the Bosnians tended to be 
Muslims, secular, very secular, although anyone could be a Bosnian. It was just a very secular region. And most of Yugoslavia was very secular. It was Mm -hmm. communist, you know. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So when you say mixed marriages, this meant nationality and religion. But prior to this time, it hadn't, mostly it hadn't been a big deal. It had not been a big deal at all. But now as the Serbs were advancing and killing people for being Muslims or Croats, Mm -hmm. uh, that was their rhetoric. A lot of people became frightened and they hadn't thought of themselves in those terms before, and they left. Mm-hmm. And and by the way, the religious identity is a sham. I mean, it's just a pretense mm-hmm. for animosity. Mm-hmm. Most of these people didn't care at all about creed or spirituality or anything that uh, you might get from a religion. It was about identity. Mm -hmm. And uh, they felt their identity was threatened, I suppose. The cities were very mixed in that sense. They were very secular. But there were still Bosnian villages where the people were mostly Muslim. And there were Serb villages where the people were mostly Orthodox Christian. And here came these Serb nationalist militias or soldiers, depending on their provenance, and they would come into a Bosnian village and get people out of their houses and maybe kill or rape or kill and rape a couple of people in the streets to terrify Mm -hmm. everyone. And often then they would round up the women and the girls and take them away in trucks to these places that were available that they found like restaurants with several back rooms or hotels that had been abandoned or schools or even hospitals that had been abandoned. And they would hold them there and rape them over and over and over and torture them with things like electric hair curlers or irons or, you know, just, uh, and if, if the women got pregnant, they would let them live. If they failed to get pregnant after a while, they would kill them generally by slitting their throats because many of these soldiers were shepherds and that's what they knew how to do. And they didn't want to waste bullets. So, you have a, a terrible situation because then when the pregnancies of these prisoners came to a place like eighth or ninth month where the women would die if they attempted a, an abortion, then their captors would let them go. And here was the policy behind it. According to Serb nationalist rhetoric, narrative, story, any child born with a Serb father would be Serb. Mm. And any child who was Serb, no matter how he was raised, and I say he advisedly, Mm -hmm. would recognize when he reached maturity that he was Serb and would claim the region 
the area where he was as part of Mother Serbia. So the idea was that these women were containers for little Serb soldiers. And they heard over and over again, now you're going to make a little Serb soldier. Now you're going to get get up to the Austrian border, will you? And, you know, claim your, your little Serb soldier will increase Mother Serbia. Well, so they would release these women maybe into the forest or maybe into a nearby town. And somehow they met various fates. Some of them got into a refugee, the refugee system. Some of them got to the hospital, the big hospital, Rapche Hospital in Zagreb, which is where I learned most of what I learned. And some, a couple who had a, a couple of instances I learned about followed the uh, suggestion of Muslim religious leaders in Bosnia and went home to their families where they gave birth to these babies and included them in their families, but not very many. According to the director of the psychiatric institute at Vrapce Hospital, the first thing the doctors had to do was treat women for suicidal tendencies. And if they survived those, then they were generally homicidal or infanticidal. They wanted to kill these babies. Uh, this was a terrible thing for them to contemplate. So many of them, most of those mothers, just left the hospital and went out into the night, abandoning the babies in the hospital. And these, uh, fortunately, there are some there were good orphanages and, and um, others took them in, but many children were born that way. Do we have a sense, Beverly, of how, how many women did this happen to? <laughs> no. Hmm. Endless numbers. I mean, at the tribunal, see, the reason, the reason we don't know, I mean, thousands it has to have been thousands. I have seen a rape camp, which was had been a, a restaurant, and I saw detritus, debris, uh, women's underpants, you know. But how many of these women then, if they survive and give birth and abandon the baby, where do they have to go? They have to go home to their village or home to their family in the city, if that's how it happens. And they don't want to be known as a victim of this or as a survivor. It ruins their lives to have that known. So let me give you an example. Um, the Victim Protection Unit at the United Nations International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, once they had arrested certain alleged perpetrators needed witnesses and they had to keep these witnesses safe. So in many cases, they arranged for a woman who had gone back to her family and didn't want anyone to know what happened to take her children to school in the morning, be flown to the Hague, testify behind a screen so the alleged perpetrators wouldn't see who she was 
and be flown back to her village that afternoon and pick her children up from school and no one would ever be the wiser. My goodness. So thousands, thousands. I just, Beverly, if it's okay, I actually just looked it up really quickly and it just even on Google, it says estimates of the number of women and girls raped range from 12,000 to 50,000. Does that check out with your research that you did as you were writing the book? Nothing surprises me. I mean, there, rape was common in the war on all sides. Mm-hmm. However, this policy increased the number. I mean, sometimes Serb soldiers refused to do it. Mm. And they were shot. <sighs> you know? Now, we need to remember a few things. One, that these actions not only harm the women, but they harm the perpetrators. Mm-hmm. So... Yeah, I was going to ask about that, Beverly, because I was thinking that, I mean, for me, what I've observed in things that I've read is when I see patriarchal systems, we've talked about how patriarchy hurts women and men. And sometimes that's because there's a a small group of men that decides what's going to happen for everybody else. And that includes women and all the other men, right? And so I was going to ask you, like, who were the players? Who were the people at the top of this structure that were deciding to use rape as a weapon of war? And how did they brainwash, or maybe you wouldn't say they did brainwash, but how did they, how did they convince all of these other men? You just said that some of them were shepherds, some of them no doubt were young men. And I feel like they're just being indoctrinated into this horribly, disgustingly violent thing. How did they get that control? How did patriarchy play into all of this? Well, from birth. Oh. From birth. You know, Tom Miller was the U.S. ambassador to Bosnia at a certain point after the war, and I got to know him and his wife. And she decided she was a therapist, and she wrote a series of books about parenting, just with drawings, not with language. And she got those. She thought that would be one little step toward getting people in that region to teach their children at a very young age how to be kind to each other instead of hitting and and yelling. And Patriarchy isn't a decision, as far as I can tell, made by people in power. It's what is normal for them, normal for, for, I guess, men, but I think there are also women who have power and uh, take on aspects of patriarchy. This may not be entirely in order, but I want to say a few things about this that I learned from, from working there. Patriarchy when it's well in place, can also protect women. For example, in the village cultures, there was almost no rape prior to the war. Why? Because the women were possessions of their male relatives. And if someone from another village were to come and kidnap and rape a woman, a girl, her male relatives would go and kill him. So there was protection against that sort of thing. Now, this doesn't even begin to get into marital rape. 
Uh, meaning, another... sorry, but just to stop you there, meaning that a husband could rape his own wife, but he would never let another man rape his wife, correct? Right. right because right. that would discredit and dishonor him to have his possession spoiled, right? Right. Yeah. right. So another fact I learned is that as Serb soldiers returned to Serbia, the incidence of domestic violence went up 200, 300%. So they couldn't just shed the behavior they had been ordered to do. Now, Sue Grand has written a remarkable book called The Reproduction of Evil. I think that uh, there might be a good explanation for you, Amy. I don't know that it's the full adult development of a frontal cortex that would prevent patriarchy. Patriarchy <laughs> is... No, that's certainly... Yes, I would agree with you there. Yeah. Patriarchy is systemic, like right. racism, like classism, like it's systemic. Now, Sue Grand says, and this is giving a benefit of the doubt to some perpetrators, the first time uh, some someone... So in our mind, we can think a soldier is ordered to do something that uh, absolutely short circuits his, his sense of morality. Mm-hmm. He can barely stand to do it. I mean, he does it on pain of death. Mm-hmm. Now he's ruined his circuitry, let's call it, and seeks a way to feel better about it. And the way he feels better about it is to repeat the act. Mm -hmm. And he repeats it and repeats it and repeats it so that it becomes normal. This is normal. Mm -hmm. This is, you know, what we do. Patriarchy is, as far as I can tell, not something we choose to tap into. It's something that is fed into us. And that means men and women. And it robs us of what I call the sacred feminine. Now, I don't want to sound like a broken record here. My friend Paul Robinson would probably say, oh, that again, Beverly. (laughs) But from what we know, original sacredness was associated with feminine bodies and reproduction and a cycle of life. And it was gradually displaced by masculine prerogative. And the ultimate example of that prerogative is femicide. Please look at Diana Russell's book, Femicide. I think she introduced the uh, term, the idea that killing a woman simply because she's a woman is normal. One of the most recent examples of this is the disappearance and murder of First Nations women. We also see it, examples too numerous to mention, what happens on the southern border of the United States, what happens in sex trafficking. And the way I I think about it is that patriarchy is 
at bottom, power. Power. And with any power comes fear. To exercise power, one has to instill fear in those over whom one has power. But the holder of the power is also fearful of losing it and will resort to whatever means necessary to keep it. I think it's very important to notice that uh, in many ways, women constantly accommodate patriarchy because the payoffs can be great. We modify our bodies to accommodate patriarchy. We give up our dreams to accommodate patriarchy. We accept all sorts of things that are quite harmful to us in order to accommodate it because we fear that power. But all the work we do to accommodate patriarchy doesn't save us from the patriarch's fear of losing that power. And so the patriarch fears us. And, you know, I mean, there have been many different explanations of this, but we could go back to the earliest epic, which comes from ancient Sumeria, where the uh, male protagonist, who is the founder of a city, so this is related to urbanization, whereas the sacrality of the feminine is related to uh, the land and agriculture, he besmirches the goddess. He insults her. And we go on through thousands and thousands of years of having the goddess broken up into many goddesses. So you can't have one all-powerful feminine symbol of this life cycle. But instead, you have one who's the goddess of wisdom, one who's the goddess of love, one who's the goddess of whatever it is. And finally, perhaps the a you know a recent version of a story of balance between sacred feminine and sacred masculine, which would be Yeshua and Magdalene, gets undone by the early. Roman Church, which of course takes all its structural all its structure from what it knew, which was the Roman Empire. So it can't have it can't stand this balance. So instead of allowing Magdalene to be a teacher, a co-teacher of Yeshua, which she most likely was, they make her a prostitute on very flimsy textual suppositions. And then they're bereft of the feminine. The early Christian church, especially after the Council of Nicaea, is bereft of a feminine symbol. But people want that still. So they make Miriam, the mother of Yeshua, 
the feminine aspect of the holy. And they make her holiness unattainable. They make her a virgin. And between the denigration of Magdalene and the virginality of Mary, female sexuality becomes totally demonized. The female association with the earth and growth and the cycle of life gets women burned at the stake in the European Middle Ages. They, they know plants, they know herbs, they know how to heal. And they are called witches. And men take over that activity and modern medicine is born. Now, you don't have to be a female <laughs> to represent the sacred feminine. I personally think that Yeshua or Jesus is an avatar of that. So are you, Amy. <laughs> but we are, you know, Derrida teaches us that you can be in a system and still perform a critique of that system, an analysis of that system, as he did certainly with language. That's the big feminist takeaway from Derrida's philosophy, as I understand it. And it's very important for us to, to do what you're doing, you know, to have the conversations, to think about it, to notice it, and to see how it, you may be tired of this word already, but how it intersects with racism, classism, you know, the feminine is so demonized in patriarchy that anyone who is powerless is essentially feminized. So, you know, persons of color, persons of non-cis gender identity, people who don't follow the norms of the patriarchy are viable targets for it because they are feminized and femicide is the ultimate goal of the patriarchy. Now I can introduce you to my son who's not like that. <laughs> not all men are like that, but it's patriarchy. I guess the point I'm trying to make here, Amy, is that uh, there's no decision to be made by the upper echelons of men in power. They, they know, let's say in quotes, naturally what to do. Hmm. And that's because they are created by a system that has been developed over millennia. But there is an underground river of the sacred, of the sacred connected to life. And by sacred, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not using the word divine because I think that's up to you. But sacred, something that is not the normal humdrum every day, but something special, this underground river of understanding that it takes starting from something like 
nurturing, starting from something like love, to promote and participate in the cycle of life. So that uh, if you want to embody the principle of the sacred feminine, you respect development, you respect emergence, birth, you respect growth, you respect um, uh, how can I put it? Helping. You respect taking responsibility. You, you become responsible. You accept that your own body undergoes the cycle. And things aren't scary anymore. Death isn't scary. It's part of it. It's a mystery. It's sacred. And in our understanding, as we, as we live like that, we can do something, something, one step at a time to uh, help each other to survive and thrive. And eventually, we have to let go of patriarchy. That's what we're grappling with now, with climate change. We have to shift. It's a very exciting time to be alive. Hmm. Well, I love that you say that at the end, because I was going to actually ask you as one last question. You started this conversation by saying that when you first read the accounts of what was happening in Croatia and Bosnia, that you that you said you didn't want to believe it was true because you didn't want to believe that things like that could happen, especially, you know, could happen then in your lifetime in the late 20th century, right? And then you discovered that it was true and that this absolute horror was happening. And so I guess my question is, knowing that that very virulent embodiment of patriarchy or that that very virulent version of patriarchy still can happen, and, and we've talked a lot on the podcast before about how there's violent toxic, terrible patriarchy. And then there's also benevolent patriarchy where there isn't denigration or a disdain for the woman, but actually, but just protecting and coddling and then keeping in the gilded, gilded cage. But that's, that's a different topic altogether. But knowing that this horrible, uh, really, truly misogynistic patriarchy can still happen, how can we say it's a wonderful time to be alive? And how can we feel any hope knowing that these things that have been happening for thousands and thousands of years keep happening? And that honestly, sometimes I just think it's so discouraging too, because when, because men are bigger, typically bigger and stronger and have basically a weapon. I mean, that's why rape can be a weapon of war is because if they ch choose to use their anatomy as a weapon, they can, right? And, and females are just susceptible to that. And so they have all of these, these things that can be used against women built into them. And then there's this systemic patriarchy. And then typically men have guns or they have knives or they have weapons. It's just women don't stand a chance, to be honest. Like anytime there's a bad guy that wants to get in, in power and then get a bunch of people, they can destroy the lives of all the other men and the women and every and all genders. And sometimes I just feel so discouraged about that. Cause like you said, I mean, it's, it, there's something about it that has been with us for all of 
recorded history in our humanity. And I have an idea of what my answer would be to this, but I want to hear what your answer is like. How can we feel hopeful in the face of that? <laughs> well, um, first of all, I, I don't agree that it's been with us since the beginning of humanity. I think there was something else initially. I well, I did say to... recorded time. <laughs> yeah, okay. <laughs> <'Cause> I... <laughs> yeah. A lot of women fight back. Uh, a lot of women use weapons. A lot of women find ways to escape. I'm thinking of domestic violence in particular. Uh, there are safe houses. Women are now reporting rapes more than they did before. But when I say this is there is hope right now, I'm not saying this is a fun and uh, pleasant time to live. I think it's a, a very difficult time to live. But in my lifetime, in my lifetime, uh, we have not had the climate disaster that we're having now. So something is being revealed. The earth is revealing to us that we will die if we don't nurture it. So already we're in a realm that's associated with the sacred feminine. You know, do everything you can, everything you can to keep unveiling, unveiling, unveiling the disasters that uh, this unbridled uh, reach for power, which we associate with patriarchy, and according to students I've had from villages in Africa, matriarchy does the same thing. We don't want that. We want a joining. You know, we want to get back to first principles. Do everything you can. I mean, what, you know, I'm retired now, and what I'm doing is uh, talking about this sort of thing whenever I can. Uh, I'm, you can see a little slideshow I gave on the history of the sacred feminine at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Berkeley website under their learning personal theology section. It's called the snake in the grass. I know I watched it. It was fabulous. Oh, thank you. <laughs> yeah, it's thank fantastic. You. Highly um, recommend it. Yeah, I, I I offer that to anyone else who is following your path too. Um, it's a, a very brief uh, summary of this history. I can, I'm retired, but I can write postcards to influence, to hopefully influence uh, elections of the election of people who are aware of injustice of all sorts, injustice against each other, injustice against the planet. I think some of the things that we that I'm particularly fearful of now are the criminalization of abortion. I'm old enough to remember when friends of mine had abortions on kitchen tables. Mm. And uh, I myself flew to Japan when I was 20 because that was one of the only places on earth other than Sweden where abortion was legal at the time and my husband was insisting on it. Mm. So I've come a long way. Mm. It's... Uh, very, very important to 
also to kind of relax and take care of ourselves and accept the gifts that the trees and the beauty and, and, you know, that remains in, in the world can give us and the inspiration we get from each other. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you how great it is to know you. Mm-hmm. There's this woman in my class. Wow, you should meet her. Oh, my oh. gosh. Oh, thanks. And I know what you were up against because mm-hmm. you shared it. And it resembled something I was up against when I was 17. I needed to leave the church I'd been raised in. And I had no one to talk to about it. So it was just rebellion, transgression. And rebellion and transgression are very helpful. But they're not, they don't offer many soft places to land. Mm-hmm. Well, I was going to say one thing that gives me hope is knowing what to do in the face of it. And I, again, was just so inspired by what you said when you encountered this, these horrible, horrible stories that just really shook you. And instead of running from it, you ran straight toward it. And you got on a plane and flew over there and said, I want to know, I want to interview women. I want to go to the restaurants where this happened and the hotels. I want to see it. I will literally walk into a war zone to tell these people's story. And the fact that then you were able to keep speaking and that that a person could be in your audience who it turned out could then understand it better. And then he could be in a position where he could improve things. And then you published the book and then it got into a person's hand who could make a difference at the UN. And now rape is recognized as a weapon of war and a crime against humanity. The fact that you were just writing your notes on on the backs of envelopes and talking to whomever you could talk to, you know, kind of like on the weekends when, you know, you weren't working your regular gig as a literature professor, but you were fitting it into your life because you felt this calling to do it. I think that's the most impressive and inspirational takeaway for me is just to remind myself to do what I can, even if it seems really small and even if I don't necessarily know where it's leading, but to think I want to tell this story and I want to understand and I want to dig into it more instead of running away, even if it's really, really uncomfortable, even if it makes me cry, even if it shakes my faith, even if it shakes, you know, my concept of what it means to be human, to run toward that because it's really empowering to and we can change ourselves and, you know, deconstruct the patriarchy that we have inside our own brains, but then also whomever we come in contact with, we can have that effect on them too. And you're such an example of that, Beverly. I'm so, so proud to know you and so grateful for your example. And I just want to thank you for having this conversation with me today. I learned a ton and it was just so lovely to be with you. So thank you for being with us. You're so welcome, Amy. Thank you for inviting me. Lots of love. so grateful to Dr. Beverly Allen for joining me in this challenging and enriching conversation. I know for myself that this interview has taken on a greater weight since we first recorded it as once again, war is devastating Eastern Europe. 
I hope that our listeners will find Dr. Allen's insights bolstering and reaffirming of the truth that even when the world is dark, especially when the world is dark, we need to keep telling our stories, we need to help the vulnerable, and we need to continue our work of understanding and breaking down the systems that divide us. So this episode goes out with extra love and with a call to do something this week that shines a light in the darkness. Send help to Ukraine volunteer at a women's shelter, write a letter of comfort to an inmate in prison, have a brave conversation, do something that shines your light in the darkness. I also want to thank you for being here this week. And as always, I'd like to thank Sam Preminger for our production today, Brianna Jovan for our editing, and Lindsay Alabest for our social media. Be sure to join us next week when we'll hear from a variety of voices, including Heather Renfro, Heather Sundahl, and Carrie Salisbury, to discuss what happens when women become the enforcers of our own oppression. This is a very important topic that is not well enough understood. So join us for that conversation next time on Breaking Down Patriarchy. 